antibiotic to use. So pretty important stuff. Wow. Well, you reeled in a seven-foot bull shark. I'm impressed, Xavier. Uh, thanks so much for that report. And thank you, all of you, for trusting us tonight on Balance with Leland Vitter. It is coming up next. I'm Elizabeth Vargas. I hope you have a great weekend. We will be right back here on Monday night. Hope you will be, too. program tonight paid for by you the unlicensed california biolab received federal tax dollars for risky research they were operating under the cover of night they did not want to be found the lab moving at least three times over the last decade sometimes in the dead of night when will law enforcement start taking this seriously we don't know uh, much about these folks we don't know if this is a company that is sponsored by china i certainly suspect that it is classroom conversations the controversial education issues heading into the new school year and the next election cycle what all parents need to know pedophile police it is a battle between good and evil and it's focused on children. Meet the man running an insurgent network taking down sex traffickers. How much influence comes from the movie Sound of Freedom? Why are you doing it? Because God's children are not for sale. Macho men, the role masculinity plays in the race for the GOP nomination. But how much do voters really care? Good Friday evening. I'm Elizabeth Pran. Leland is off. First tonight, the seemingly untouchable Republican frontrunner. Just 24 hours after wrapping up the court appearance for his third federal indictment, Donald Trump just moments ago taking the stage as the headliner for Alabama's annual GOP summer dinner. On the surface, you can say it's been a hard week for the former president. He appeared in court yesterday for his third arraignment this year, taking the opportunity to flip the script. This is a very sad day for America, and it was also very sad driving through Washington, D.C., and seeing the filth and the decay and all of the broken buildings and walls and the graffiti. This is not the place that I left. It's a very sad thing to see it. Uh, When you look at what's happening, this is a persecution of a political opponent. This was never supposed to happen in America. A new poll following the news of the indictment showed 45 percent of GOP voters would not back him if he were convicted of a felony crime. And that's significant if, in fact, Prosecutor Jack Smith can prove his case. But this is Donald J. Trump. Nothing touches him. If there's one thing he's known for, it's being able to capitalize off what would otherwise sink any human being with a pulse. Look at the media. Yes, us, the media. We've scripted his grand finale plenty of times. Remember, he made more than $24 million in the fundraising quarter following the FBI raid of his Mar-a-Lago home, and then more than $15 million in the two weeks after he was indicted in the Stormy Daniels hush money case. Of course, two-thirds of that went right back to his legal team in the first two quarters of 2023, at least according to the FEC. But he still ends up coming out ahead. Not to mention that Democrats have become so wrapped up in the narrative of the president's age at this time that they're really losing their focus on the president. Now, haven't you noticed we've seen a lot of Kamala Harris? Statistically, she doesn't pack the punch to match up to Donald Trump. Recent polls shows her falling short of matching up to, well, 
Donald Trump. Meanwhile, the rest of the GOP field still hovers well below Trump in national and most state polling. And despite his legal troubles, they are taking notice, even ripping some pages from Trump's own playbook for their own advantage. Trump's own former vice president, Mike Pence, is hawking merchandise, bragging that Trump once called him too honest for refusing to delay the 2020 election certification. Now, again, for any other political candidate in any other election, being federally indicted for the third time in a year and losing some footing in the polls would be a very bad week. But this is not any other political candidate. So in nod of one of our favorite end-of-week segments, this is our look at good week or bad week, Trump edition. Political consultants Sher Michael Singleton and Nicole Brenner-Schmidt joins me now to decide whether or not it has been a good week or a bad week for the 45th president. So I do want to start with you, Nicole. Your take on the week. I, I'm not really good at math, but I, I count 78 charges. I mean, look, it's all relative. I think it's a bad week overall for President Trump. What you just showed was even in an electorate that seems to be willing, his base, that seems to be willing to uh, nominate him uh, no matter what is happening, the majority of Republicans said if he's convicted, they're not going to vote for him. The majority of independents already say that they're not going to vote for him. And he did have something touch him once. The American public, the American public in 2020 said, we don't want this man to be president anymore and sent him out of the White House. Now, he seems to think it's a great week because for him, it's the way to continue to raise a lot of money and stay in the spotlight. It's all anybody talked about this week. And he continues to have a base that strokes his ego and cheers him on. Okay, all anybody talks about, but sure, Michael, I mean, just talking about him isn't, it's not necessarily put him in office. And I mean, we're still really not even in the primaries yet. Well, we are, but when we see this polling, what do you think? I mean, look, what it, what it indicates is that every time a new indictment comes, the former president sees his polling numbers increase. And everyone else, including the number two contender, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, sees his numbers decrease. And so I think this is a good thing for Donald Trump. It's a bad thing if you're the Republican establishment, however, because many of them were hoping that Ron DeSantis would be their candidate. And he's turned out to be a lackluster candidate. Maybe he's better off fighting Disney down in Florida. I'll say this quickly. Donald Trump showcases his ability and okay. his stability to have a strong position with the Republican voters. Okay, and I hear what you're saying about DeSantis, but we still we still have 18 months ago. If we had to decide the election 18 months prior to, and every other election, it would be a different turnout. Uh, I do want to ask you, Nicole, about scandal fatigue. Uh, is it, is it going to wear off? Are we going to see the good weeks flip, maybe, and they start to become bad weeks? I mean, look, there's going to be a fatigue about all these scandals and the, the Republicans are continuing to try and say, look over here and point to the Democrats. And it's a scandal off almost between these two parties. But the reality is, I think the important thing will be, does the judge allow the cameras in the courtroom? Are we going to be able to watch this trial? And are the American people going to be able to see that what Trump is saying, trying to cite that he was talking about it in First Amendment, is not applicable here? It's about the plans and what they did to try and take away the vote from the American electorate, because they are all the victims in this crime. So I think if we do see this televised, the American public is going to pay attention. And I think you're going to see even more independents start to say this is not someone who can lead our country.
Okay, sure, Michael. Do you agree with that? Do you think that a, a, a televised, uh, you could say a takedown is going to make a difference? Because if you think about it, he continues to flip the narrative. So every time he is under attack, the man is under attack, meaning you sitting on your couch, you're under attack. And that's exactly how many Republican voters feel. First, I don't think any of the judges will allow cameras in the courtrooms. And, and that, that's a pretty normal thing for, for most jurists. With that said, keep in mind, 68 percent of the American people do not believe the country's headed in the right direction. Uh, a significant percent of Americans think President Biden is too old. A lot of them don't have faith in Vice President Kamala Harris. And despite some indicators that the economy is getting better, the Fed chief continues to raise interest rates. He just raised them another 0.75 uh, basis points. That impacts people, people's bottom line. So the question isn't whether or not they like or dislike Donald Trump. It's how much money is in your bank account. Yeah, you may have a job, but actually, are you making more money to pay for your basic necessities? That is what's going to be front and center in 2024. You know, Nicole, uh, I heard Shermichael bring up a good point. He brought up the vice president. Boy, I've seen more from her over the past week than I've seen in the past two years. Well, look, President Biden's been on vacation this week, and he is doing what we see presidents do, which is rolling out their surrogates all over the country. She joined Gina Raimondo, the Secretary of Commerce, yesterday in a speech. She was very present this week, uh, out and about, and touting what the Biden administration knows they do need to talk to the American people about. What is their bank account? We've seen wage increase. We've seen lower uh, unemployment. But we do see these American people, these poll numbers that say they're not exactly thrilled about where the country's going. So he needs to talk to them about what did the infrastructure bill do? What does the inflation doing? And what are his plans going to continue to be? And it can't just be the President Biden. He needs to depend on the Vice President Harris. Secretary Buttigieg and his cabinet to go out and be talking about this message all over the country as well. All right. Sure, Michael, I'll give you the last word in 15 seconds or less. Good week or bad week for the vice president? I think it's a week that's not going to make a determinative factor in terms of Americans liking her. <laughs> All right, we'll leave it at that. Thank you both for joining us. I appreciate it, you on a Thank Friday you. night. Thank you. We'll see if you we'll we'll see how it turns out. All right, so listen to this story. It turns out you, the taxpayer, funded the unlicensed California bio lab where foreign nationals engineered mice to carry some of the worst pathogens known to man. This is according to the federal government. Prestige Biotech received $150,000 in PPP loans. That's on top of the $360,000 tax credit from California Governor Gavin Newsom. Reportedly, at least six employees are connected to the Chinese government. Remember when we told you the company is working to reopen at another location? China Hawk Gordon Chang was just on our network to talk about whether or not the Chinese Communist Party is really funding, running and staffing the California lab. We've got to be concerned that China views um, a war as something that will be fought not just in Asia, but on American soil. Um, so we have, for instance, um, Chinese coming across our southern border. Uh, you know, most of them are just desperate people who have given up on China. But among them are males of military age traveling in packs of five and 15, pretending not to speak English, not accompanied by family members. Um, and some of them are known to have links with the Chinese military. And we've got to be extremely concerned that these are saboteurs that will link up with the lab in Reedley, California and other locations. 
All right, with us now, Nicole Ziba. She's the city manager in Reedley, California, where this lab was discovered. Nicole, when I look at this timeline, it's actually quite breathtaking. We're talking about multiple moves over the past 10 years. This lab was still able to reopen and re rerun, sometimes moving in the middle of the night. Uh, quite stunning, actually. Um, you know, how has this happened? How have they been able to open and reopen multiple times? Well, boy, that would be a great question for uh, our state and federal government and the loopholes that we have right now for completely privately funded labs. And this is a big deal. We need folks on both sides of the aisle in Congress to realize a lab like this could be in their backyards right now. Now, I'll say for my little town of 25,000 in agricultural rural central California, I am so proud that we took this this lab down and we did this in what we think you know, is two months. You, that they and I and we have a photograph. It was only discovered because someone saw, if I'm not mistaken, a garden hose with materials leaking out of the backside of this warehouse. I want to bring up um, the number of agencies involved in this investigation. Can you tell us not only who is assisting you, but what did they find inside of this illegal lab? Well, I can tell you who we reached out to. Um, because the, the feds have a federal law, they can't really tell you if they are or are not investigating. But we've been working with, or we reached out with, the FBI, the CDC, um, the California Department of, Department of Public Health, the FDA, FDB in California, the IRS, I mean, you name it, it's the whole alphabet soup of agencies because this is such a complex case. The picture you're showing up right now is what I believe to be the nation's best code enforcement officer. She sees a, a little green garden hose coming out of the backside of a building that we've known to be vacant for a decade. And she says something is not right. I mean, wow, it's like David taking down Goliath, right? A little green garden hose. Can you tell me what you know about the people who were working inside of the lab? And then how in the world did you manage to get it cleaned up? What did you do with all those materials? I mean, they're, they're hazardous materials. They are. And I would tell you that um, the 360000 that were allocated for this company, boy, I'd love it if California would allocate that to our little city to help in the, in the cleanup that we've had to pay for. So, um, you know, at this point in time, we still do have some materials in the lab, but all biologicals have been removed. And I want to really um, say the Fresno County Public Health Department has done a phenomenal job in making sure that the Reedley public is safe. Uh, removing all the biologicals there. Um, we still have some packages, some material. You know, this company was, um, for the last few years, making pregnancy tests and COVID tests. We know that many of those were recalled for safety reasons. Uh, those tests are in this facility. So it's a, it's a fascinating little house of horrors that I walked into when I went through it, um, full PPE, um, looking at vials of blood, I'm looking at jars of urine, I'm, I'm opening desk drawers and finding uh, needles. And it's just a, a terrible situation to walk into. And like I said, these are privately funded labs. They don't have the same federal regulations. Um, this is really something that we need our elected officials on both sides of the aisles to fix. Right. And what can you tell us more about their private funding? Obviously, we went over that they, they did get some money from, from our government, obviously the taxpayers. But what can you tell us? What do you know about the connections to China, the funding? Is there anything you can disclose? Well, I can disclose it because when we filed court documents, uh, those all became public documents. So I can let you know that I received an email from a gentleman purporting to be the lab CEO who was in China telling me he can't get a visa to come over and meet with me about the situation Anybody that we have uh, met with on the site um, has shown us documents that, um, you know, Chinese nationals with U.S. documents. So 
I don't know exactly where all their funding has come from, uh, but I can tell you that it is a completely privately funded lab. We know that because there was no public funding associated with it, which means they did not have to adhere to the same standards that publicly funded labs have to adhere to. Now, obviously, what we had in Reedley was even worse. It was the house of horrors. Um, these are bad actors that came to Reedley literally under the cover of night, never came for a city building permit, never came for a license. Uh, they were operating at night. We would, you know, we had some undercover officers watching people in lab coats going in and out at night. They didn't want us to know they were here in Reedley. That's unbelievable. Nicole Ziba, thank you so much for joining us. Um, we, we wish you the best. And obviously, as you mentioned, um, for people all over the United States, this was in plain sight. Uh, so very educational that you're here with us tonight. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. Switching gears now, James Carville's famous words to Bill Clinton back in 1992 arguably paved the way to the White House. And it's become iconic. You know it. It's the economy, stupid. This election cycle, we might change the word economy to education. The classroom is at the center of America's culture wars. Students still haven't recovered from pandemic learning loss. Both reading and math scores for 13-year-olds and down or over, they're, excuse me, they're down over the past three years. Nationwide book bans are another hot issue. Nearly 1,500 bans are in place as of this year. Our partners at The Hill say those are the biggest issues facing education this school year, along with artificial intelligence and alteration in curriculum. Emerson polling shows education is the seventh most important issue for voters in 2024. But those numbers are certainly higher among suburban women, a key voting block in every election. Joining me now, president and founder of Moms for America and Moms for America Action, Kimberly Fletcher. Kimberly, thank you so much for joining us. I mean, I have two children uh, in the public education system, heavily invested. Why are moms so important this election cycle? Well, they're important because we are actively engaged. And I know for years we kind of stayed home and figured our husbands can handle the vote. But when we realized that our children were in danger from our own school systems that we entrusted them to, and then moms became the mama bears that came stood up and started protecting their children. You saw it in 2021 in Virginia. We mobilized moms and worked with various different organizations in the state to reach out to moms and give them the tools and resources to be able to be effective in having their voice heard in that election. And we did the same thing in Florida and several states in 2022. It is not going away. Moms are going to continue to fight as long as they feel they need to protect their children. Kimberly, uh, is the Department of Education necessary? No. <laughs> the Department of Education is not necessary. It was unnecessary when they started it. Um, education standards, the, the, where our children go to school, that's all local, and everything should be local. And the further away it is from our children, the less say that not only we, but the teachers as well have in what's happening in the classroom and in our schools. And we hear from just as many teachers as we do from moms. They don't like what's going on either, but they're afraid to say anything. They're bullied. They're intimidated. They, they are afraid of losing their jobs or losing opportunities or bonuses. And so they just quietly step back and try to make a difference and hold the line. But they thank us repeatedly for standing up and being out there because they don't feel like they can. Is that the Department of Education has, it's just an overreach? Uh, I mean, how do you take the, the cat and put it back in the bag? 
Well, that is always the problem. When you create a, tech, a tax or you create a department, it's really easy to just start it, but it's a lot harder to, to dismantle it. The Department of Education was completely unnecessary from the very beginning. And since the Department of Education was founded, our education scores have actually gone down. The other thing that has, I believe, contributed to that is the digital learning. And I'm not talking about putting computers in the classroom to, to, to teach computer science. I'm talking about putting everything on a computer. You can't learn well that way. And so the depart between the Department of Education and throwing computers in front of kids and saying, here, go learn, that has had a dramatic effect on the, the development and the educational experience of students across the country. Then you throw in COVID and what's left? I mean, the, the goal should be teaching children to be lifelong learners who love learning they don't because they're not being taught those very basics real science true history a math that actually calculates critical thinking none of those things are taught anymore it's just do what we say repeat what we say and make sure that you embrace what we say and that the students don't like it the teachers don't like it and parents mothers especially do not like it yeah, it's unbelievable. Kimberly, thank you so much for joining us. You know, as I said, I'm a, a mother, I'm a voter, and I'm seeing it anecdotally um, in the state that I live in, and I'm, I'm seeing it in the headlines. So we'll see, it. We'll see what moms decide when, when it's time to head to the voting booth. Thank you so much. Thank you. Country music conversations. What the success of a song featuring gay lovers says about the country music fan base. I will stand my ground. I'm a bad man looking for takers. Plus, why a former Marine took it upon himself to launch an insurgency network targeting pedophiles. We'll have that story coming up. You might have heard the FBI carried out a human sex trafficking sting last month, freeing hundreds of survivors. Operation Cross Country rescued 200 trafficked victims, 59 of whom were minors, some as young as 11. They also arrested hundreds, charging dozens with sexual exploitation and trafficking. And this is part of a larger problem in this country. According to the State Department, human trafficking is the third most profitable criminal activity. Traffickers earn nearly 10 billion annually, trafficking up to 800,000 people every year. Rescuing kids from sex trafficking sounds like a very popular movie we've heard of, Sound of Freedom. The hit, low-budget independent film was released over a holiday weekend, the 4th of July. And since then, it's raked in about 150 million bucks, much more than its big box competition, Mission Impossible. You might remember when the movie came out, critics blasted it, saying sex trafficking is reduced to a QAnon conspiracy. These films are created out of moral panics. They're created out of bogus statistics. They're created out of fear. And with something like Sound of Freedom, it specifically is looking at QAnon concepts of these child trafficking rings that are run by the high-level elites and only people like Tim Ballard and only people like Jim Caviezel and, by extension, only people like the ticket buyer can help bring these trafficking rings down. And the characters in Sound of Freedom, which is based on a true story, as you heard, represent a growing network of activists taking predators on themselves. 
That's why we're talking about Victor Marks. He runs an online intelligence outfit designed to help police catch people involved in trafficking. And Leland spoke with him earlier. Why do you think there is such sort of questions surrounding this idea of child sex trafficking existing? Well, I'd say at the very minimum, it's people's ignorance. And in the worst case, their nefarious intentions to keep stuff hidden that they know is happening and even some may be involved in. All right. Help us understand what you do and why it's needed to have folks like you when, as we just heard, the FBI was there rounding up uh, hundreds of people that they arrested and rescuing 200. Well, I, I do believe that nonprofits or NGOs that are comfortable in this space that move with both excellence and integrity uh, can assist in ways that help law enforcement or agencies that call us in. And I, you know, the, I don't think people really understand how overwhelmed law enforcement is, specific to child pornography and child predators. Their caseloads, it's almost like CPS. There's far too many kids being abused for any one agency or all of them combined to take care of every one of them. So therefore, I think organizations, again, that move with excellence and integrity and have a really long-standing track record can be trusted to help law enforcement so what did, what and other you teams all, do this. What have you all been able to do to help law enforcement? Well, it, if we're talking about specifically to this country, it, it's teamwork. I can tell you that for sure. No one can claim all the credit. It's always teamwork to either provide outsourced intelligence or putting together packages or using open source intelligence gathering techniques that are legal and can be used to help build evidence against the individuals that are doing and harming children. All right. The numbers around the around the world, third most profitable criminal activity, nine point five billion dollars generated annually, six hundred to eight hundred thousand men, women and children trafficked each year. Now, that's that's worldwide. Uh, right. Based on what you guys are seeing, how big of a problem really is this within within domestically in the United States? Well, you got to remember, there's different types of trafficking. All things possible ministries focuses on really pedophiles and seeing children be set free from that and help them heal. The problem is enormous and it's specific to child pornography. There are millions of downloads and transfers of child pornography every year in the U.S. alone. And, and last year, less than 300 cases were actually prosecuted. And few people know this, but about 86% of all these transfers and downloads are done at work or through companies' IP addresses. So it takes a, it, it, it really takes people understanding how bad this problem is. And, you know, I'll, I'll just say this. From our perspective, we know it is a battle between good and evil, and it's focused on children. All right, so Victor, you're, you're famous, and some of our viewers, I'm sure, will recognize you not only for your work in, in this space, but also your YouTube videos, including uh, this one where you take a gun away, uh, this time from your son, but demonstrate the technique uh, in record time. Take a look. All right, I guess, Victor, the question that some would ask here is you've got the FBI and others, and forgive me, but I've never heard the FBI and others 
talk about the work of these NGOs and, and groups like yourself, Skull Games and others, to, to help them in this process. How much is there a criticism to be had that this is a little bit of playing playing Rambo, playing cop by by people who aren't in law enforcement? Well, I think for some organizations, absolutely. But those that different law enforcement agencies appreciate and understand, they will give credit. We did a recent thing a while back with HSI out of Kansas City, and we provided support in ways that they actually needed to further do what they needed to do. And recently, my wife and I just recovered from bringing a girl, um, recovering a girl who was horribly being abused by a pedophile. And we had to bring her into the United States from another country. We got wrapped up at the border. And after a number of hours of working through it, it was actually a Homeland Security agent that came in while everybody was kind of lathered up and said, guys, this is Victor Marks and his wife. They're actually the real deal. And they do good work for, we're going on two decades. So most people doing the right work aren't trying to claim credit. As long as we see predators being put away and children being protected and women helped, especially with aftercare, because that matters, not just the rescue. All right. Fair enough. Victor, keep up the work. We'll have you back as uh, new cases present themselves. Thank you. Appreciate it. All right, thank you so much, Leland. Switching gears now, another country music video is drawing attention and making headlines this week for a very edgy song, but for a different reason than you might think. Tyler Childers' new song tells the story of a romance between two male coal miners in the 1950s. I will stand my ground. I'm a bad man looking for takers. You're the finest thing around, so I So the song has nearly 4 million views on YouTube in just eight days. It's garnering praise from music critics. From Rolling Stone, Tyler Childers, quote, In Your Love is the music video of compassion and caring we need right now, end quote. So it's a stark contrast, right, to the headlines we saw about Jason Aldean's Try That in a Small Town. The Daily Beast described that one as a modern lynching song with racist lyrics. Try that in a small town See how far you make it down the road But that didn't stop Aldine's hit to reach the top Billboard's Hot 100 and remarkable feat for country music. Two other country songs hold the remaining spots in the top three. So, should children see similar success, it could poke holes in the idea among many that country music fans are conservative and small-town reactionaries. Anyone who thinks that just hasn't been paying attention. So, with me now, one of our favorite guests, Kurt Bardella, a Democratic strategist, LA Times contributor, former House GOP Oversight Committee advisor, but most importantly, a country music super fan. I have to get your reaction on this one. Yeah, you know, I think that people are starting to see who are tuning into the country music format for the first time from a cultural standpoint. It's not as straightforward as you might think it is. There's actually a lot of diversity of thought, acceptance, inclusion. I think about artists like T.J. Osborne and the award-winning Brothers Osborne duo that's won many ACM and CMA awards in recent years. I think about one of the faces of country music media, CMP's Cody Allen, uh, you know, being openly gay like T.J. 
So it's not surprising to me as someone who has been embedded in the country music community for going on seven years now to see the reaction to Tyler's song be welcomed and, and, and given that praise. Okay, the, but the the difference between the two, you know, when when I first saw the video, I mean, it's beautifully done. I, I mean, I, it's, and it's a beautiful song. But to hear you say that country music is all about inclusion, I mean, that surprises me a little bit. Am I alone in that? Well, I, I don't think it should be that surprising if you actually uh, are like people who who understand country music and understand a lot of the songwriters of some of the greatest love songs that, that we've ever heard were written by songwriters who happen to be gay. Uh, a lot of the uh, hits that we've seen from artists like Luke Bryan has a song called Most People Are Good that literally has the lyric, I believe you love who you love and that's nothing you should ever be ashamed of. You know, it, 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 it's a lot more mainstream than I think people want to give it credit for on the outside. That's why the reaction to the Al Dean song was so annoying to me. Uh, because we're hearing from all types of people who haven't spent a single second in the country music world, who've never been to a country music concert, who've never been to a Jason Aldean show before, drawing all these conclusions and painting the entire format with the same brush. And that's just, it's not that black and white. It's like the rest of this country. It's complex. It's nuanced. There's a lot of different cultures and uh, you know norms that are being talked about, debated about, and that's what art is. Art and music and lyrics and songs are expressions. They are ways for people to move beyond literal meaning and find deeper meanings to try to understand what's going on in the world around them. You know, that was actually my next question. You know, how does this make you feel as someone? I mean, we went through your resume. It's very impressive. But at heart, you just love country music and you're listing off all of these, the history of these beautiful songs. How does it make you feel when you see Tyler write this beautiful song for a family member who he, who he said is gay in his family and he wants this song out there and he created this beautiful story for you as a fan? How do you feel? I think it's great. I think that's country music and music in general at its best, a form of expression that, that connects people who may not fully understand your point of view, who have never maybe walked in your shoes, but through this song, through this video, can harness that a little bit. And maybe they come away from it going, oh, I get it now. Even if you don't politically agree, even if you don't necessarily uh, subscribe to that, at least seeing it this way presented to you in a format like this might get you to understand a little bit better where people are coming from. And I felt that way about the Aldine song. Listen, most of this country, they don't live in big cities. They don't live in metropolitan areas. They live in small towns throughout this entire country. And maybe that song, if you look at it from the standpoint of this is where these people are coming from, if you want political change in this country, you have to meet people where they actually are. You can't start at a standpoint of where you want them to end up being. Most of these people, they are living in small towns. They're living in one-stop light towns. They know their neighbors. Their, their generations of families have grown up together. That's where they're coming from. You can't start by attacking that. Versus Tyler's song, again, you may not be gay. You may not like gay marriage. You may not understand a single thing about gay people. But maybe seeing that song and that video will allow you to connect to it in a little bit more of an understanding way. Well, uh, beautifully said, Kurt. And if, if we're seeing four million views in just eight days, I suspect that we have a lot of people who are opening their eyes. So thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it. Thanks. Thank you for having me. Macho men, GOP candidates, are playing a game of who is the manliest, but do voters even care?
Welcome back. He who is the strongest wins, right? The contest to prove who is the manliest presidential candidate is in full swing, but really isn't every election. And it doesn't have to be a man. I don't put up with bullies. And when you kick back, it hurts them more if you're wearing heels. That's former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley. Her hat is in the ring, too. If there's one candidate who has it down, we don't have to tell you it's former President Donald Trump. His unapologetic, macho stance on everything from your hard-earned donations to harassment allegations. Trump is known for not backing down. But will this work for every candidate? Or when we hear from former vice president who goes on the offensive, does it really land? Uh, the president uh, specifically asked me and his gaggle of, uh, of crackpot lawyers asked me to literally reject votes, to, which would have resulted in, uh, in the issue being turned over to the House of Representatives. Polling shows Republicans believe women. In essence, they aren't a fan of what they call masculine values, but they don't want men in charge. But America chose a man in 2016. In fact, instead of a woman, they chose someone who seemed to fly in the face of every Democratic or liberal talking point. Again, we go back to Donald Trump. As we mentioned earlier in the show, Trump's former vice president, Mike Pence, is swiping a page from his former boss's playbook. He's trying to profit from Trump's insult that he's, quote, too honest for refusing to run interference in the 2020 election certification. I want to bring in Dr. Lauren Wright, associate research scholar at Princeton. She joins me now to look at what Trump is doing and what these candidates are trying to do. Lauren, thank you so much for joining us. You know, we've talked about this in elections prior. Can Donald's Trump persona be emulated? So I think it's very difficult. And I think one of the problems is if dominance is macho, if winning is macho, it very well may be a case that the winning candidate, the one that's dominating in the polls, head and shoulders above everyone else, is seen as more masculine. I would believe that more than I would believe that it's some sort of nebulous combination of factors dealing with masculinity that made Trump win in the first place. I think, you know, he's an entertainer. I wrote a book about how his celebrity status uh, really propelled him through the primary in 2016. He's got a lot going for him besides the macho-ness. So that would be lower on my list than perhaps some people. But, you know, and we see it. So we talked about Pence. Um, we've talked about, and this is the Democratic side, but we have to talk about, you know, RFK working out, shirtless and jeans. We've seen right. Governor Chris Christie really in his own persona. Our, the, the president of the United States, I, in my interpretation, when he's sipping on his dark coffee, that just seems very masculine to me. He's got the rustic voice, which he typically does. I'm, I'm just curious, are they all trying to create this persona ahead of the first debate? Is it going to land? And, you know, what do American voters want to see at this stage? Well, authenticity and relatability drive a lot of these decisions. Candidates just try to humanize themselves. And then if you're someone like Trump, who's already universally known and became famous on, you know, a reality television show where people felt they got a real glimpse of his personality, you're going to have an advantage. But for these other candidates, 
they think you know, sports are relatable. Maybe I can bring some people in with that. Uh, a lot of people drink coffee. A lot of what drives these decisions is trying to make candidates look like normal people. And you're absolutely right. Sometimes they miss the mark. It doesn't seem genuine. And that can end up backfiring. So it's it's a very careful, tightrope walk. And many of them fail at it. Well, I would agree with you on that one. And we only have about about 20 seconds. But when we look at this polling about the hostility towards masculinity, then how did we get here in the first place with and I'm talking about 2016. And now we're looking at the front runner polling. If the masculinity isn't resonating, how are they getting elected? Well, we've only had male presidents and men run at much higher rates than women run. But when women run, they win just as often as men do. That's what research on Congress shows. And so I really think as we see more women get into the contest, Nikki Haley was a great example. You don't get to be the first female governor of South Carolina and the youngest governor in the country if you're not tough as nails. And so many women who could be successful on the national stage probably right. also have to show they're pretty tough too. I love that. Lauren, I love that you were joined us tonight. Thank you so much. Regardless of party lines, I think the takeaway is that we need a woman in office. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thank you. <laughs> New information on the Gilgo Beach murder investigation. Chris Cuomo joins us next with what he's learning. Police in New York are requesting more DNA from the Gilgo Beach murder suspect. They're trying to find out if he's connected to Karen Vergata's murder. Investigators identified her today as Jane Doe number seven. She disappeared 26 years ago. Chris is here. Chris, you have a lot more details of the story tonight. Yeah, it's a little confusing, Elizabeth. It's great to see you on a Friday night. Um, they want the DNA swab. This is not like Idaho, the Brian Koberger case, where by state law they get it as soon as they bring him into custody. In New York state, you need a conviction. Uh, and he obviously doesn't have a conviction on his record, so they couldn't get one. So they're trying to do this through a warrant. And they went to the judge and they have to put in arguments and we'll see if they get it. They likely will. Uh, what will that mean for the body they found on Fire Island for the fourth uh, body of women known as the Gilgo Four for connecting, most importantly, this suspect to the three bodies that he is charged with? That's what it's really about. And we'll get into it. But I did want to compliment you. Um, the segment that you had before this one about masculinity mm -hmm. and what it means is a really important topic. And, and not just because of the nominal um, you know, argument about whether or not masculinity is under attack. Everything's under attack. But it's a really important mm -hmm. thing to identify in politics. It's always been there. We've always tried to make uh, mostly, as, as you noted, the men to be archetypal men. And that is a uniquely American right. portrait. And I don't think it exempts women. Um, first of all, most strong women, uh, most strong men were made that way by women in their lives. You know, the, the mothers, the sisters, the wives um, really are what give you your spine. Right. They, they, they give you something worth fighting for. They they give I you mean, motivation. Chris, so they're if, shaped. But it was a great discussion. If you want me to run for president, I will. I will. I'll run for president Listen, if you want me to. You just have to make sure it's okay with my husband. Well, and the network, we need you here. Um, 
you know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, <laughs> right. uh, may she rest in peace. They're yelling the at me, Chris. Justice. I got to go. I'm sorry. They, but she said it right. right. How many women should you have on the Supreme Court? All of them. Why not? You've had all men. I was going to say. Balance will come. <laughs> yep. Thank you, Chris. Appreciate it. We'll be right back. 